0: This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. So this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 8 and see how that story that one of our our CPO adoptive families experienced last week was written in in the story of the early church. It's written throughout the scriptures and that story continues to be written in our lives today that when life goes sideways, it's not over. God has a plan. So again, now, now you think expectations and experience. So I, like I said earlier, I, I emailed, texted some of the, the moms at Christian Chapel and said, tell me how your expectations of having kids compared to your experience once you actually had them. What Basically, I said, "What what do you think of now? that you just laugh at, at that you ever expected that in the first place. And so they they sent back several responses. I shared that longer one with you earlier, but um, they said things as simple as like, I expected to sleep and I don't, right? I expected that my kids would always get along and they don't, right? I mean, maybe some of you, your kids are perfect and they do. Uh, I expected that I would look like all the cute moms I see on Instagram, but I spend most of my days in an old T-shirt smelling like baby puke, right? I expected, when I'm set, I expected that my body would just pop right back after pregnancy. And it didn't. And I just left that one alone because there's nothing to be said there. Like that's a minefield. So you just walk away. You know, men, the answer is you're beautiful. Uh, but I, you're beautiful. And you just keep saying it over and over. And sometimes you yell it and run away. Uh, but do what you can, right? Just you're beautiful. Go with that. So moms have these expectations of what life's going to be like. When Angie and I, before she had Connor, I remember the day uh, he was born in February. And so it was like a, a December, January Sunday. And we were watching a football game and you know she was there with her big pregnant belly. And, and we had this talk of like, isn't it going to be so cool when he's born? And on Sunday afternoons, he just lays on our chest while we watch football and basketball and it, it never happened, you know, like thankfully, eventually by the time he turned five, he would sit and watch that. But we never had those. It's like babies aren't really that considerate of your schedule. They're really pretty terrible human beings. But, um, you know, so so we had these uh, experiences from moms and, and probably my favorite one um, was one who said, I expected our dinner table would be full of clean, smiling kid faces, enjoying the food I had made and talking happily about their day. I mean, who doesn't want that? But if you have one kid, if you have multiples, you know it doesn't happen. She said, in reality, it's a lot of yucks and arguing and correcting manners, and we sprinkle in timeouts and spankings. And I mean, that's kind of the experience of moms. That's the experience of many of us. You don't have to be a mom. You don't have to be a parent to know that sometimes the, the, the course you've charted for your life is not what you wind up experiencing. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we start to see how this is played out. Now, last week we talked about in Acts chapter 2, when Jesus has promised the disciples, he said, look, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. He's going to fill you with power, and you're going to be my witnesses all over the world. And then in Acts chapter 2, Peter has an opportunity to stand up and address this huge crowd of people, and it says 3,000 people were added to their number that day. If you go on to read in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, you'll see stories of them living in the resurrection power of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit inside them. And there are miraculous things that are occurring. The sick are being healed. God is drawing people to Jesus. The church is growing every single day. There are times where the apostles are arrested, and angels come and open the gates of the prison at night, and they walk out, and they continue to preach the gospel. I mean, Acts 4 and 5 are these amazing stories of, hey, we chose to follow Jesus. He's filled us with his Holy Spirit, and now we're part of an unstoppable force in the world. And it is awesome, and it's outstanding. In Acts chapter 6, the story switches. Acts chapter 6 and 7 tells us the story of Stephen, one of the leaders of the early church. Stephen is arrested. He's put on trial. During his trial, he gives this eloquent defense for who Jesus is. Every bit as eloquent, every bit as powerful as what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. But instead of thousands of people choosing to follow Jesus, they stone Stephen. And so the church then moves into this period where they have to develop a theology of suffering. They have to develop a theology of eternity. They have to begin to understand how is God at work when what we expected doesn't happen. Most likely when Stephen was arrested, the early church expected that the same thing that had happened previously would happen again. God would come, he would miraculously deliver them, and they would prove to the world once again that Jesus is bigger, Jesus is stronger, Jesus is greater. But instead, Stephen dies. And in Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3, it begins to describe for us the situation that the church finds itself in after Stephen dies. So it begins in Acts 8 verse 1. It says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, Stephen's death is, is alarming. It's threatening. It's, like I said, it's, it's the first time that they haven't been delivered like they thought they would be delivered. Not only does Stephen die, but now they're under threat themselves. It says that Saul begins to go door to door, dragging them out of their homes, men and women alike, and throwing them into prison. It's the beginning of of Saul's reign of terror on the church. It turns their lives upside down. It says all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It's a picture of people who are packing up and moving out. Who are walking away from jobs and from families, from the life that they knew, and the only reason they're doing it is because they have chosen to follow Jesus. Now, there are lots of lessons that, that we learn here in Acts chapter 8, but before we get to them, there's something very important for us to acknowledge together. You and I, where we are right now, are not persecuted like that, Right? It, now, it's, it's very popular for Christians in America to cry out, the woe is me, I can't believe they, whoever they are, are doing this to us. But as far as I know, in this room and, and really in our, in our nation as a whole, no one is under the threat of prison or death simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. Now we have brothers and sisters around the world for whom this Acts 8 experience is their reality. They're being driven out of their homes. They're being torn away from their families. They're being thrown into prison. They're being killed for their faith. And so what's important for us to acknowledge and to understand this morning is that yes, we may suffer. Yes, life may be difficult, but we shouldn't be quick to call that persecution, right? Because when we call everything persecution, Nothing is persecution. And, and when we begin to say, oh yeah, this is my life. This is what happens to me. I'm being torn away. What, what really happens in our heart is we become kind of selfish and inward focused and we lose the ability to care for and to pray for our brothers and sisters who are actually suffering, being imprisoned and dying for their faith. So as we come to this story this morning, we come with that understanding and, and it does a really good thing for us. It gives us a huge and healthy dose of perspective. When we read the stories both in the scriptures and in the news of believers who are being imprisoned and killed for their faith, it reminds us that if God is big enough to be with them there in that moment, then he is surely big enough to be with me here in this moment. It it kind of reframes our understanding and gives us a, a healthier view of what it means to surrender everything to follow Jesus and what it means to trust Him in life's most difficult hours. I mean, if 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 you don't, if you're still struggling to grasp that concept, maybe think of it this way, moms especially. If you have uh carried a child, given birth to that child, and you've walked through that whole beautiful experience, and then one of your friends who has never had a child but has a cat and they come to you one day and they tell you you're complaining about, I don't sleep. My old clothes don't fit. My whole life's upside down. Uh, you know, my kids taking pictures of me just to prove that I wear makeup sometimes. Like you've got this story going on. Your friend's like, I know just how you feel last night. My cat threw up on the floor. Right. Your response is not like, yes, that's the same thing. Your response is like, you're an idiot. We can't be friends anymore. Right. Like this is just no. Tell me how your cat sat on your bladder for nine months. Tell me how they used you as a punching bag from the inside out. Like, tell me how. And, and, and you. so you go down all these roads. Now, it's the same thing. When we talk about persecution. Yes, we may suffer. I, I'm not saying we don't, but it's not the exact same thing. And so as we approach this text this morning, let's do it with the humility. That just says, man, if God could be with them in that situation, and if God's with our brothers and sisters all over the world today who are suffering and dying for their faith, then I I want my heart to be attentive towards their needs. And I also want to understand, man, God, give me that perspective of if you can do that, then you can do this. My needs, my issues, my problems are small compared to those. And when we begin to take that shift, I think then we can, we can walk with a little healthier understanding and beginning to learn that even when our expectations don't meet our experience, God is still at work. So the, the, the church is scattered. They're fleeing Jerusalem. They're running away, but they don't do it with their heads down or in shame. In Acts chapter eight, verse four, it says those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Their world was turned upside down. New homes, new jobs, new new neighborhoods, new friends, all of these things. But when they go do it, they go and they take advantage of all of the newness as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Now, almost every church historian that you will read will tell you that periods of persecution often serve as a catalyst for church growth. And that's exactly what happens here in Acts chapter 8. The enemy comes and he tries to stamp out the flame of the gospel. But all he succeeds in doing is spreading the embers to new locations, right? When when the church leaves Jerusalem, they don't run away as refugees. They are launched out as missionaries and they begin to preach the word wherever they go. You see, what the enemy had intended to push their faith underneath actually caused their faith to become more pronounced as they moved into new places and interacted with new people. The rest of Acts, the whole New Testament, tells us this story of the spread of the church. How every time the enemy comes and attacks the church, it results in the church growing and expanding in new areas. As you move over to Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. See, this threat of persecution sped up the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Because they were persecuted in Jerusalem, they were launched out to these new areas. Antioch would go on to become the center of the early church after the persecution in Jerusalem became too great. And as we read this story of the church is persecuted and the church thrives throughout the book of Acts, throughout the rest of the New Testament, and really throughout church history, we're reminded of two very important truths that the scriptures teach us. The first one is that what the enemy intends for evil, God can use for good. You go all the way back to the story of Joseph in Genesis. Genesis to his brothers selling him off, to trying to, to pretend that he's never existed. And then God raises Joseph up in Egypt to this position of prominence where he not only saves his family, but he saves the entire people of Israel. And they grow and they thrive. And then God leads them out later with Moses. And when Joseph's brothers come to him and they're repenting for their, their wrong, this is exactly what Joseph tells him. What the enemy intended for evil, God used for good. And you see that story played out again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and the stories of the kings and the prophets and the judges, and the stories of the prophets and the stories of Jesus and the disciples and the early church. What we see again and again and again is every time sin tries to bring destruction, God brings restoration. Every time sin tries to stamp out the kingdom of God in our world, it only spreads to new places and to new people. And it reminds us this morning that no matter what we are suffering with, God is able to use it. God is not the source of evil, and he's also not limited by evil. He's not the one who's causing evil things to happen to you, but he is the one that can work through those. There is nothing in the world that's happened to you that binds the hands of God and prevents him from being able to work in your life. The the second principle that we learned from Acts chapter 8 is that God can often use the difficult seasons of life to get us from where we are to where he wants us to be. The early church was thriving in Jerusalem, but Jesus had told them, you're not just going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we don't know if God causes the persecution. Or if he just allows it and then chooses to work through it. But what we do know is because of that persecution, it speeds up the process of taking the gospel around the world. It's an Antioch where for the first time it becomes not just a Jewish message, but a message available to all Gentiles, to everyone, everywhere. And it reminds me and you, in seasons of suffering, one of the the primary questions we have is, why? God, why did you let this happen? Why did you let my spouse leave me? Why did you let my parents treat me that way? Why did you let me lose my job? Why did I get sick? Why, 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 why? We want to know why all the time. And sometimes in his grace, God answers that question. Sometimes it's very obvious. The why is just because this is the choice we made or someone else made. Sometimes it's just the result of living in a fallen world. But we should never become so so focused and so wrapped up in the why that we forget to ask God what and how. You know, when, when you're in those seasons of suffering, it's fine to pray and to ask the why, but, but be sure you're also asking God, what are you doing in me? God, how are you going to use this for your glory? See, when you're in a dark season, it's going to be tempting to say, well, this is just, this is God's fault. He's just doing this to me. God's the one that caused my spouse to leave me. No, he's not. Was it the sin in your spouse's heart? Maybe the sin in your heart where instead of two becoming one, two were torn apart. God's not the one who gave you that cancer. It's a result of living in a world that's been afflicted by sin from the inside out. And even though God's not the one who does those things, he can still work through those things. He can still take the dark seasons of life to get us from where we are To where he wants us to be. And so I don't know where you are in life this morning. I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what you walked in with. I don't know what weight you're carrying. But my encouragement to you today is to understand a couple things. God loves you. God sees you. He has a plan for you and he's working that plan. It might not look exactly like what you want it to might not be achieved in the timing that you would prefer, but it's happening. The scriptures tell us this story again and again and again, that what the devil intends for evil, God uses for good. And that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, sometimes God's just taking us there to get us where he wants us to be. Sometimes we go through these seasons of loss and hurt and suffering for this healthy dose of perspective and for this hope of a new life. But when we come out on the other side, God doesn't just save us a little bit. He's not just helping you survive, but he actually has a plan for you in that and on the other side of it. Last week, we were able to sit down with uh, one of the members of Christian Chapel and have her tell us her story of this experience. Of walking through a season of life that she did not expect at all. And how through that season of hurt and sickness, through a, really an extended season of suffering and questioning... She began to learn and understand the goodness of grace and grace of God in, in really powerful ways. And wasn't just delivered through it, but found new purpose and meaning on the other side of it. And so if you'll turn your attention to the screen, we're going to watch the story of Michelle Berglin this morning.
1: I'm Michelle Berglund. I've been married to Dorian for 16 and a half years now. And we have three biological children. Um, and we foster a little girl that we're getting ready to adopt, McKinley. She's two. June twenty-third, two um, 2008, it was the day after I turned 29, um, I was diagnosed with stage three, grade three breast cancer. It was not at all what we were expecting uh the phone rang uh 8:15 on monday morning i was wrestling with toddlers trying to get them dressed to get them out the door to vacation bible school um and it was a doctor on the phone and i had no point of reference for the words that he said to me um that i had breast cancer um my mother-in-law was actually in town visiting and um so i just i kind of collapsed in her arms and um and then kind of tossed the kids in her lap and frantically said, I, I have to go pray and ran out of the house in the rain crying and, and just had to collect my thoughts and pray and, and get on get on the same page with the Lord because, you know, what were my kids going to even know me? Jaden was 12 months old. Was, was I just going to be a picture and some stories? Would, would they ever remember me? And I didn't want to tell him over the phone, but um, I did, and he just dropped everything. He said, "I'm on my way," and I, I don't even know that we could talk about it. We just cried, um, and it, it it wasn't real. It it wasn't really happening. I couldn't even say it. I mean, saying I have cancer was it was so foreign. It was almost impossible to say. I felt the most secure in myself and in where life was headed, um, on June 22nd. I, uh, I was confident as a parent. We were starting a new business. We were going to be homeschooling. We knew exactly where we were going and exactly what we were doing. And, and then I didn't know anything. It wasn't good. Um, I went to a specialist and I remember sitting in her office and her holding my hands and crying with me. She cried with me and she said, this is bad, but we are going to fight with you. There were hard days. There were were days where I would just look at my children and wonder if, especially Jaden, being a baby, wonder if he would ever remember me. And God would just say, you're alive today. And that just kind of became my, okay, I'm alive today. I can do today. I'm alive today. I have today. And so instead of focusing on, oh, this could be really bad. I could die. I focus on, I have today. I'm with them today. I can pour into them today. I had a head shaving party. I mean, what do you do? You're losing your hair. My sister came over. We baked brownies and we shaped mohawks into my hair and um, just, we were insane. Um, but it was that or cry, and I didn't want to cry, so um, we had fun with it. The first three to four weeks after diagnosis was a lot of on my face before God, just crying out to him, not knowing what is going to happen, what is going to happen to me, and he just continued to speak to my heart what he'd been already speaking to my heart, that I was in the palm of his hand, and nothing could happen to me. We did chemo for three months. Um, Chemo was... I had good treatments and I had hard treatments. Um, I lost my hair after the second treatment. Um, after the third treatment was probably the hardest. I had no energy. I was just—I mean, walking from my bed to the bathroom. I was out of breath. I had—I, you know—had lost so much weight. My—I I couldn't breathe. July of two thousand nine. Um, was when I had my big, major surgery, and that was the double mastectomy um, with reconstruction. And um, that was my supposed to be my finish line. Life wasn't what I wanted it to be or had expected it to be, and that's where I had my crisis of faith. I was supposed to be done. Like it was supposed to be over. and um and it wasn't over. And every surgery was just what? just one more surgery, Just one more surgery. Um, no that didn't work just one more surgery and um, every one more surgery was asking people my family um, to help me take care of my kids you know it was one more no mommy can't pick you up because i hurt it was i can't cook for my family i can't take care of my family all along i had said i can do this lord for your glory and i couldn't see how me draining everybody else was glorifying God, the times where I thought that I'd lost faith or I didn't have, or I was holding on just by the smallest thread, just sheer will. I refuse to lose faith, but I have no faith. Um, He was faithful for me and his love was there and just slowly day by day, every day he was there in the darkness with me. I was never alone, and He pulled me out just with His love every single day, um, and showed me that I didn't have to do anything or be anything to bring Him glory, that just me being in Him was enough. Because there are days and seasons where it's not about me doing, I, I can't do, it's just about being His. That, that was enough and in those places he would just hold me and that's what would get that's what got me through I, I I'm just absolutely in awe I'm alive I'm here and I'm here for a purpose and I'm here for his purpose and um, he really started birthing in Dorian and I this um it's not our lives like we're not here to live our lives we're here to live you know for him and what um what does that look like and what does that mean and on July 29th um, 2015 i really i had been out with pastor Rennie that morning and talking with her and sharing my heart with her and that day i really felt the lord reaffirm yes this is for me and so of course it would be that evening that the phone rang um and placement coordinators from the foster agency called and said they had a little girl they didn't know her name and said she was an eight-month-old little girl that needed a home um, and would we accept placement uh, they had no information about her um, only her age and that she needed a home and Dorian and I um, said yes and within, uh, within 20 minutes I think um, they were at the door it was just under a year that we fostered her um, when her mom, her biological mom, called and asked if we would um, adopt her, if we would be interested in an open adoption. And um, we said yes, we had fallen in love with her, and she had fully integrated into our family. And it wasn't even, it wasn't a hard question for us. The answer was yes, absolutely. He's perfect. He has the most beautiful, he writes the most beautiful stories. Um, I can't even begin to can't even begin to describe how perfectly he orchestrates everything. Um, yeah, I, I didn't. I was worried that Jaden wouldn't know me, and now here I have another little girl. Jade not only does Jaden know me, but now McKinley knows me. Uh, it, it's his life, and and. As as long as I am breathing on this earth, whether that is just for the rest of it today or for another 40 or 50 years, it is his life for his purpose and for his glory. And that is the only reason I exist.
0: In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. When we're in those seasons like Michelle is, I think there's there's a hope that God will save us. And yet at times we have this doubt that he can completely save us. So we find ourselves in a season like Michelle and we're thinking, God, just don't let it kill me. I mean, think of where she was. She was 29 years old. Do you remember, for those of you who are on the other side of that, do you remember how awesome 29 was? Like 29, that's that season of life where you're finally starting to figure things out. You're getting a little settled, but you're still actually in your 20s. Like it's just... It's beautiful. You've got like this one glorious year before you're 30, and you know. And that's where Michelle was. I mean, man, the, the business is getting started. The kids, they've got a plan. She's confident, she's healthy. And with one phone call, everything changes. And, and you and I have been there, maybe not to that extreme, but you've been in that moment where everything is different. And now your hope is God, just save me a little bit just don't let it wreck me completely. And in that season, Michelle's crying out to God, just let my third child remember me. God, you've given me three, just let me live enough that he will know his mom, that I won't be a picture on the wall. And the whole time, God's plan is not just to save her, but he's got a number four out there that's even yet to be born. See, God, the power of Christ at work in us enables him to answer our plea for salvation in ways that are beyond all that we could ask or imagine. His plans are greater than our plans. His power is greater than our hurt. His love runs deeper than our sin. And so this morning, no matter what you're facing, no matter how much of your pain is your fault or someone else's fault, the message of the gospel is that new life is available to you the same God who brought hope and healing to Michelle is the same God that now deals with you in your needs today. And so let's come with open hearts and open hands just saying, God, we're laying all of this down. All of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the fear and we're asking for your kingdom to come and your will to be accomplished. In just a moment the band's going to lead us in that song we sang earlier called Overcome. And there's a line in there that that I think we sing so quickly, we maybe don't recognize the power of what we're saying. It says, for every fear, there's an empty grave. For every doubt, for every hurt, for every pain, for every sickness, for every death, the answer of God to you is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he tells us again and again and again, if I can do that, I can do this. If it wasn't over there, it's not over here. If I can raise him, I can raise you. And so we come today in our weakness and in our failings. We come with our hurts and our brokenness and we just say, God, do it again. God, do it for me. Speak life, speak hope. Bring your salvation. So if you'll stand up with me, I wanna pray for you and then they're gonna lead us in this song together. God, we come in need of your salvation. Lord, you see our hurts, you see our pain. You see the way we suffer. You see the way that we lack, and we're just trusting that you're a good father who brings good gifts to his children. So, Lord, we come to repent of our sin. We come to lay down our plans. We come and ask that you would remove the hurt, the fear, take away the bitterness and the anger, and replace it with love and peace. Help us to find our identity as your sons and your daughters. Knowing that what you have spoken, you will achieve in our lives. Knowing that the victory you have won, you invite us to participate in. So Lord, I pray especially for those today who doubt your ability to work in their circumstance. May they lift their eyes up and may hope come again today. Holy Spirit, come and make real the power of Christ in our lives. That we know even in seasons of suffering, you know us, you're with us, you have a plan, and you're working that plan. God, we surrender to you. We trust that because you have overcome, we will triumph with you. We place all of our hope in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.